What up, everybody? I'm so pumped that you're here. First things first, I need like a CD of these beats, like to get hype before. I, that's dope. Like that church beat, I, I was, I'm hype. Anyways, besides that off tangent, I hadn't seen that yet, so it took me by surprise. But here's the thing. We're in a brand new series, and that's why there's a brand new video that I have not seen. And this series is called Grace and Truth from Philemon and Jude. And so what I need you to know about this series is Philemon and Jude are two very commonly overlooked books in the New Testament. You might not even know that they were books of the Bible. In the New Testament, right between Titus and Hebrews is this one chapter book called Philemon. And then if you keep flipping, right before the book of Revelation, there's another book called Jude. Again, just one chapter. And so you think, oh man, how are these guys going to pull off a four-week series on two chapters? You just wait. But we're in week one, and I am so pumped, and it's called Grace and Truth, because these books couldn't really, they, they're really different. They don't really overlap at all, but we wanted to preach both, so we combined it and came up with a clever name. And so tonight, we're doing Philemon, and we're going to dive into, like, kind of the first half. I didn't split it perfect, because I get to choose where I stop. But here's the thing. I got to ask you a question first. It's a classic pastor move to ask the congregation a question before we dive into the message. So here it is. Have you ever been asked to do something you didn't want to do? I, I should see like every head nod, like affirmation, yes, this is a part of life. Like you have been asked to do something you didn't want to do, but the hard part becomes when you have this like terrible conviction inside of you that makes you feel like you want to do it. Like if they ask you to do something and it's like you don't want to do it at all, it's super easy to say no. If you need to learn here, I'll teach you. No. You just say no. You type no. You just respond. And I know some of us are bad at that here. This is, you can take that from the message tonight. But it's hard when they ask and you're like, oh, I know I should do it. It's like you have plans, but someone asks you and it's like, you know, you should probably do these plans, but you really want these plans. Or if you don't feel like you've ever had a person do this to you, just think about your alarm clock like every morning. Your alarm clock tells you, hey, not as nice as that, but it says, hey, get up, get out of bed, get out of the warm, cozy bed and into the big, scary world. And I like to say, no, thank you. I'm good here. But every morning I know there's its deep, gross conviction that I need to get out of bed and live my life. And so I get up and the alarm clock is no, we're not, we're not friends, but I keep listening to it time after time. And I had, if you didn't know, my wife and I, in the last month, we actually bought our first house. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. We used to live in an apartment, now we're in a house, so I'm really in debt again. But what happens when you buy a new house is not all the time do you find your perfect house. And so we found a house we liked. It was great, decent price, good location, checks a bunch of boxes. And the problem was, so it was built in 2005, and you don't need to know that, but I think it helps. But the lady who built it, she was, uh, how do I say this, old? But old in the sense that she ain't got no taste. She put green carpet in the whole upstairs. And so I walk into my home for the very first time and I'm confused and turn around because I think I'm at like the mini golf course or a pool table. Like it's disgusting green carpet. And so what happens is I need that out like yesterday. Like we move in on a Friday, like I need it gone today. And here's the thing, I go to Lowe's and I buy new flooring. If you've never done flooring today, there's this nice new like click flooring so you just snap it together. However, it takes some skill. I don't have any skill. And so the thing is, I am also on that 
I'm very cheap. So I have the, you can see this dilemma I'm painting. I have $2,000 worth of flooring. I don't want to pay the $3,000 to have it installed, but I cannot do it myself. We have a dilemma. I'd love to be chip. I'd love to get on my inner gains and to snap that floor together. I can't. It's not in me. I don't have that bone. But I started to think, and the wheels were turning, and I remembered that I actually have three friends in Sioux Falls who have done this before. They've done it a couple times. But if you've ever done flooring, it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Like, you're on your hands and your knees snapping boards together for hours on end. And I had to lay like a, a 1,100 square feet. Like, it was a lot of flooring. And so I knew that even though they'd done it before, deep down, they were not going to want to do this. And so I started the text. And I don't know if you've ever sent a text like this, but I started, hey, guys, it's Brennan, it's me, your friend whom you love, and I love you, and I know you're very skilled, and you've done this before, and I'm just poor, I'm schmoozing hard, like buttering them up, and I'm like, you remember all those great times we had together? We don't get to see each other near enough, and I think you should come up to Brookings and take just like a small trip, just like a, we'll have some fun, we'll just lay some floor just on the side, but we'll have some fun, and like when you help me, like I'll feed you like sloppy joes, like somehow that's compensation for the back-breaking work they're about to do, and my friend's they didn't respond for like four hours. I was talking to my wife and I was like, they're not coming. Like, I'm going to have to pay this three grand. And they eventually responded because they probably got that conviction feeling. And they came and they laid that flooring. We started at 5 p.m. We finished at 4 a.m. <laughs> and they're never coming back to my house ever again. That's probably, they're never going to help me ever again. But here's the thing. I tell you this story because it's a part of life that we're going to get asked to do things we don't necessarily want to do. But not only is it just a part of life, I think it's a part of Christianity. That to follow God, to walk in his ways, to live in relationship with him, is to be asked to do things you don't want to do. Paul, in this letter to Philemon that we're going to read, he's asking Philemon to do something he does not want to do. God asks us to do this all the time. Let me give you some examples. In everyday things, God may ask you to wake up early to read your Bible or to pray or to journal or just to sit with him. But we're tired. <laughs> like that 15 minutes, that hits hard when the alarm goes off and you don't want it to. And so every single day the alarm goes off and it's your, your flesh, you, you, who you are as a person does not want to do that. But God's asking you to. Or maybe it's not a morning thing, it's a night thing. But at the end of the day, you've worked really hard. You've had a long day. You've done your homework. You've done your classes. You've gone to your job. And you get home and you just want to relax. But yet God is asking to spend time with you. Or maybe it's not just you and God, but God is asking you to invest in relationship with someone. And there's that person in your, your class or at your workplace that they are unbelievably annoying. Trust me, I, I know the unbelievably annoying person. But to be a Christian is to love all people the way Christ would. That's, that's what it means. And that's God's desire for you. But I sure don't want that. And so God, every day, is pointing me towards ways, and he's pointing you towards ways to love him that we don't always want to do. But maybe it's not just an everyday thing for you. Maybe God is asking you to quit a sin that is taking pieces of your life and it's harming you. And he knows it's best for you. And he's asking you to give it up. But deep down, you don't want to. Now, I'm going to get a little real. So if you get offended, good. But here's the thing. 
Maybe every Friday you go downtown with your friends and you drink too much. And God is asking you to stop pursuing drunkenness. He knows it's bad for you. He knows the decisions you make. He knows how it affects your relationships. I could go on and on on the causes, but deep down you think, what am I going to do on a Friday night if I don't do that? Or let's change the page. Let's, Let's get some more people in the room involved. Maybe you have a significant other and you made boundaries and God encouraged you to make those boundaries and you listened in that way, but you keep breaking your boundaries. And deep down you keep crossing that line And you know he's trying to protect you, to save you for your future, that his ways are the best ways for us. But really, deep down, maybe we like it, and they like it, and I don't want to change. And sometimes God's going to ask you to do even bigger things. Maybe it's not quit sin or it's the everyday things, but it's to stay in a job that you hate, or to get a new job, or to quit a job you like or to marry or not marry a person, or move or move to a different city. Like, God is asking us to do things that sometimes we just don't want to do. And in that, we're going to read through some of the story of Philemon and see exactly what it means to say yes to these things. To do that, we're going to start with point number one. And it's not on the screen because it's kind of like my, my subheading. But really the point is, who's asking? Who's asking this question you don't want to hear? Because when it's a question you don't want to hear, it is vitally important that we remember who is asking. Let's go back to my friend example. Imagine I buy this couple of grand worth of flooring, which is like ridiculous. Like they're literally fake wood. Like why does it cost this much? But that's a tangent. Imagine I go up to the random Lowe's guy and I gave him the same speech. I said, buddy, my name is Brennan and I love you. And I know you love me. And I, we, we are such good friends and I've got a bowl of chili for you, and I'd love for you to come over and do 11 hours of backbreaking work for completely free. What's the random Lowe's guy say to me? He says, who are you? Why are you asking me to do these things? But it's because relationship matters. Who's asking the question matters. So let's look at our first three characters, the main characters in this letter. The first one is Paul. Paul is the one asking the question. He's also the letter writer, so the author of this text. And throughout this letter, he plays a third-party mediator because there's this conflict going on between two people. And the first one of those people, his name's Philemon. And Philemon is the letter receiver. He's the one being asked the difficult question, the one who doesn't really want to do it. That's Philemon. And who he is as a person is he's a well-off Roman citizen. He's highly educated, he's financially rich, and because of that, and because of his relationship to Paul, he's become a church leader in his community. That out of his home, because he has wealth and status, he is running a church. And so essentially, he functions as a pastor. But the conflict comes in because Philemon has been hurt. And he's been hurt by our last character, who is Onesimus. And Onesimus, he is the letter carrier. That Paul has written it, And he's handed it to Onesimus to walk and to deliver to Philemon, the man he has hurt. He's the topic of the letter. And in that, the reason he's hurt Philemon is because Onesimus was a runaway slave owned by Philemon. And this is not prescriptive to tell us this is how life should be. It's just descriptive to tell us how it was. And so Philemon owned Onesimus as a slave and Onesimus ran away. And while he was away, something key happened in his life. 
Onesimus ran into Paul, and the two of them, Paul led Onesimus to Christ, and he became a Christian. And so now the whole plot takes place that Paul has given this letter to go back to Philemon to have Onesimus try and be reconciled to him. Let me read you some of it, starting in verse 14, weirdly enough. It says, but I, Paul, did not want to do anything without your Philemon consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he, that's Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. But catch this, have him back no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even more dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Verse 17, it says, And so, if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Many of us would not understand the question that's being asked right now. That Paul has asked Philemon to welcome someone back as a free man. In our culture, total sense. Like, obviously, slavery, wrong. Condoning that, everybody should be free. In this culture, what Paul has just asked Philemon to do, by not only forgiving the debt that Onesimus owes him, the wrong that he did to him, but to welcome him back as a, as a brother, would be societal and social de- deconstruction. It would be an absolute demolition of his entire life as he knows it. His social status, possibly his wealth, his career, his standing in the community, everything would fall apart as people would look at him and they would see that he now sits alongside a slave. And so we don't understand it, but the question that's being asked is unbelievably difficult. And it's being asked by Paul. So let's look at who Paul is. Verse one, it says, Paul, who's the author, so he writes in third person, which is hilarious. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And Timothy, our brother. Timothy becomes the co-author, and that's all we're going to say about him. But Paul, what he's just said here is actually really interesting. Maybe not to you, but I'm a little bit of a Bible nerd. And so when Paul introduces himself, he's telling us who he is. And so if you didn't know, Paul has written the most books out of anybody in the New Testament. And so every single time he, in, he introduces himself, he always says the word Paul and then a descriptive word. In the book of Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Titus, every single one of those books, Paul introduces himself as Paul, an apostle. Every single time. The only letter besides Philemon where he does not introduce himself in that way is Philippians. And in that letter, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. So why? You're going to write all of these letters. All of these are going to make it into the Bible. You're going to consistently pen the word of God. Why in one letter do you change what you've done so consistently? And I want you to key in because what Paul refers to himself as shows his purpose in that setting. A week ago, I did my very first funeral. That sucked. It was terrible. It was so hard. It was super sad. But it was my privilege to be able to do it. And in that, it was (laughs) the person who they had lined up to minister the funeral bailed last second. And so the funeral director called the church here and he asked if they could get anybody lined up. And I am like bottom of the list totem pole. I'd never done a funeral. And all of a sudden I'm doing it. And I walked in there. I'd never met the family. 
I knew nobody there, and I knew very little about the man who had passed. And so when I stood up at that pulpit to deliver this sermon to these people I'd never met, about a man I'd never met, the first thing I felt like I needed to do was to introduce myself. And so I said, hey, I'm Brennan. I'm a pastor over at Grace Point. It's my privilege to be here with you today. And in that moment, I introduced myself, and the title I gave myself showed my purpose for being there. Later in the service, the son of the deceased man came up. When he came up, he said, hi, my name's Matt. I'm Chris's son. He wasn't there to give a eulogy. He wasn't there to be the public speaker. He wasn't there to be the spotlight. His sole purpose, his reason for being there, was to be the son of his father. That's why he was there, to grieve the loss of his son, and he, or of his father. And he introduced himself in that way. And so Paul here has introduced himself as a prisoner. And I don't want you to get it confused. This isn't some metaphor. Paul isn't just thinking like, oh, I'm in chains for Christ. Like, he legit is sitting in a jail cell, probably chained to a huge metal ball so that he can't even move around. This is the condition Paul finds himself in, and not for the first time. Paul actually is imprisoned twice, twice in his life. Twice. <laughs> Sorry, got myself. Twice in his life. The first time is he's, uh, is, we see it in the book of Philippians. And when he's arrested and jailed that time, he's put under house arrest. So he's like living lavish. Like it's like the easy version of prison. He's in there and he knows he's getting out. And so he writes the letter of Philippians and he gets released and he continues to do ministry. And then he gets arrested again. And this time when he's jailed, he writes the letters of 2 Timothy and Philemon, the book we're reading. And as he's in that jail cell, we know that it was harsher, it was more difficult, and he didn't believe he would get out alive. He had very little hope for life left on earth. And so our question becomes to Paul, when he identifies himself as a prisoner, we would ask, do you want to be there? Seems rhetorical, but I think it's a right question. In Philippians, Paul said, I've learned the secret of contentment, whether I'm hungry or full, whether I'm sick or alive. And then he says, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says that in Philippians, but now he sits not believing he's going to survive. In 2 Timothy, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering and my departure is near. He's predicting his own death. And we ask the question, Paul, I know you know contentment, but do you want to sit in a prison cell? And I, I think the answer is no. And the reason that's important is because as he sits in that prison cell, he starts to write this letter. And he's about to ask a question to Philemon that he knows is not going to be a positive response. And so Paul's ask, it really becomes an invitation to join him in suffering and to do something hard. In 2 Timothy, he says it like this. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 8, it says, so do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We are three words into the book of Philemon, and Paul is already pressing into the hard ask he's about to deliver. Paul uh, describes himself one other way in verse 9. It says, it is as none other than Paul, an old man, and now as a prisoner of Christ. That's how he introduces himself. It's like almost like the prisoner thing's important because he says it twice in 20 verses. But he also says he's an old man, and I would think, why? 
Like my, our generation, we think, okay, boomer, like what do you have to teach us, old guy? Like scholars believe he was probably between the ages of 52 and 62 at this time when he's writing this, which at this time was old. Like that man was like saggy, like gross sitting in this jail cell. And he says, I'm an old man. And then he begins to tell him about a cultural issue he's dealing with. Imagine your grandparent sits across from you and they say, and you have to explain to them that like Jordans are cool or that like Michael W. Smith isn't. You, you guys don't go to church enough. Michael W. Smith, Google him when you go later. But when you sit there trying to explain a cultural thing to your grandparents or vice versa, it just doesn't click. But here Paul is writing this letter to address a cultural issue. And he says, I'm an old man. But in our culture, it means nothing. In their culture, it meant everything. Because his, his age reflected his wisdom, the respect he deserved, and the authority he had. Verse 8, it shows that. He says, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. But he says, but I won't. Which is classic, hilarious rhetoric. Like, I could do this, but I won't. And we get Paul's, this old guy, sitting in jail, who's inviting Philemon into suffering and hardship with authority and respect. But I'm still confused why Paul's even involved. Like Onesimus and, and Philemon should just work it out on their own. Like they're the two people in the conflict. But then I'm struck by the relationship Paul has to both of them. That in their relationship, we see in for, uh, verse 1b, it says to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow co-worker. And so Paul is starting to describe why he's involved in this conflict. Because he has relationship with both people, He's invited into this place and he says, you are my dear friend. And in verse four through seven, he describes why he's his friend. He gives thanks. He says that he loves him. He describes the benefit that can go both ways. I think Paul and I would get along, you know, like he's buttering them up. Like I know how to do that. But then he reminds him that they're fellow coworkers, they're partners, which also doesn't make any sense. Because really, they're not. Societally, they couldn't be farther apart. Then remember, Philemon is a well-off Roman citizen, highly educated, wealthy man. Paul has foregone, foregone all of that and now considers everything that Philemon has as trash. He says that. He, I, he essentially says, I consider it poop. Like, that's the difference in their societal status. So they should not be able to associate. But if you flip it, also spiritually, they couldn't be farther apart. That Paul is this man leading the New Testament church. He is driving forward the movement of God. And Philemon is, yeah, he's a pastor at a local church, but like, they're not even close. And Paul shows that when he says, I could command you. I could tell you what to do and you'd have to do it. But yet somehow there's balance in that. And I find that it's because they're on the same mission. A mission of Christ and of love and of transformation and building up the kingdom, all found in verses 8 through 11. And so Paul has this relationship to Philemon, but then Paul also has this relationship to Onesimus, which makes all conflict messy. We know this, because he's led him to Christ. Verse 10 says, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I'm in chains. When I first read that, I was like, Paul, what kind of jail are you in? That's kind of odd. But the language there is not an actual son. It's like a metaphorical son. That the two are together 
father and son, but only in Christ and not in blood. And so he has this connection, and as you read through verses 10 through 11, you see that they're actually doing ministry together. And now you get to enter into the conversation and ask the question, I know you're all wrestling with, why does this matter to me? Paul's letter from thousands of years ago, why is it included in the Bible? If you didn't know, Paul probably wrote hundreds of letters, if not thousands, that didn't make the text. But Philemon, a personal letter between two people in the midst of conflict, somehow makes it in the, in the pages, the cover. Why is this letter in here? I want to believe alongside you that it's because the Holy Spirit knew it would reach a broader context than just Philemon. I think he knew it would sit here and get to us today. That Paul, through the Spirit, is inviting us into the difficult conversation he's having. He does it by some of the language that I don't really have time to go into, all of the names he includes from front first sentence to last. Paul is inviting us into the text by the power of the Spirit. And this is where you can start to see yourself in the text. Because I described to you three main characters, but what if we change those? That instead of Paul, maybe we tap in like, God, like we'll just, we'll just throw him in here. And then instead of Philemon, we put you in there. And so now God is writing this letter to you. And then instead of Onesimus, we'll just put any kind of issue or thing that came into your mind throughout the night. The thing that God keeps asking you to do, but deep down in your flesh, because of who you are, because of the things you, you, you're struggling with, you don't really want to do it. And now we'll run the argument back that Paul used. Because God, as the author, the mediator, he knows hardship and he knows suffering. He's also wise and he's like kind of respected. He has incredible authority and he deeply, deeply cares for you. He wants what's best for you and he's leading us on mission together. The argument that Paul made, everything that he said is good but it's even better when it's in God. And so it takes us to our response. That if this is a letter we are receiving, if this is a petition God is giving to you, our response must be yes. Philemon will say yes, and you'll see that next week. But we have to say yes because of our relationship. The only reason Philemon says yes is because of who Paul is. The reason we should say yes is because of who God is. And when we say yes, it teaches us to trust that God knows what's best in our lives. That in my worry, in my stress, in my anxiety, in my depression, in my hardship, in my school, in my career, in my love life, in my family, in my friends, in it all, God knows what's best for me. And I can trust him with that. But it takes saying yes to the difficult questions to get into some of the benefits that we see in verse 6. Paul writes, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. In three points, I'm going to tell you the benefits that come from this one verse. The first one is, if you're obedient in the hard things God is asking you to do, 
you'll build your own faith. Paul says you'll deepen your understanding. I have people come to me pretty consistently and they'll say, I just, I want to know God more. Or like, I just really want to deepen my relationship. Or I want to feel God. I want to experience him. I want to live life with him. Time and time again, I've been drawn back to the text this week to see that obedience is the answer. That for us to experience God more, we've got to be faithful with what we've got. In the little things, the hard things, the daily moments, every single morning when he's asking you to get in your word. If you're obedient in that moment, you'll know, more, you'll know God more. Your faith will be built up. The second thing in here is I think you'll be reminded of God's goodness. That you'll get to share in his goodness. Paul says that you have a deepening of your understanding of every good thing we share. The beauty of following Jesus is it's a good thing. That walking life alongside this community, doing what God asks you even when it's hard, it's a good thing. To let go, I, I have never, ever, ever in my life come across a Christian who got over a sin struggle they were battling with and at the end of it came to me and was like, you know what, and after they had final victory and they're like, they didn't struggle with it anymore, I've never had them come back to me and say, you know what, I wish I still had that. You know what, like I've got this great group of friends, I'm living in community, we, we connect really well, I'm just, I think I'm living in God's design, but I wish I was downtown drunk right now. My wife or, or my, my relationship, my significant other, like we're in the best place we are because we're not relying on physical tan, uh, intimacy anymore, but rather we're, we're verbally creating connection and commun- communication. We're learning what it looks like to, to live in relationship and to practice for marriage, not with our physical bodies, but with all of our beings. But you know what? I, I really wish we would have done that thing some more. I've never heard that. You get to be reminded of God's goodness, his protection, and his grace in relationship with him when we're obedient. And the third thing, Paul says, we get to share in every good thing for the sake of Christ. And we get to walk with Jesus each and every single day. We titled this section of the series, Grace. Grace is a beautiful gift from God. Grace is the reason We get to live in relationship with Jesus, not because we earned it, but because he's given it to us. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul sums it up well in this. He says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace is given us in Christ Jesus. It's all about relationship. It's all about God's grace, learning to live and to walk with him but it fundamentally lies on this idea that God loves you and he cares for you deeply. Despite the struggles that you have in your life, despite what you've been through, despite what you think about yourself, God loves you. He doesn't want you to stay that way, but he loves you right where you're at right now. And because of that, he's going to ask us, not in spite of his love, but because of his love, he's going to ask us to do things we don't want to do. But that becomes an opportunity for us to embrace obedience, grow in grace, and turn around and become the people he wants us to be. We know Philemon says yes to this tough question. Next week, we're going to dive into the implications of that, because they're deep, and it's epic. 
but I don't want you to move too quickly past what Paul's done here. This week, God may ask you to do something hard. It could be simple, but it could be hard. Don't downplay it. Like, if it's hard, it's hard. But try to be obedient. Try to live life by the Spirit because He knows what's best for you. Pray with me. Father, I thank you tonight for the word of Philemon and for the way that through Paul you penned this letter that still speaks to us today. And I thank you for your love for us and your tenderness that God, even in our sin, in our struggle, in our hurt, in our pain, even in the disappointment we feel like we've done to you, God, you still love us. And so tonight, would you speak that afresh over your people? That before you bring that challenge, before you throw that, that question back to them, God, would they just feel an overwhelming sense of your love, your peace, your joy, God? Would they be filled with the Spirit so that when you ask that difficult question, by that same Spirit we would go in obedience to build faith, to be reminded of your goodness, and to live life with Jesus. Would you build our faith in the room and do what only you can do? In Jesus' name, amen.